Hear now the word of God. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of God. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer before we begin to hear the word of God through his message today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have sung, to have prayed, to have heard your word. And Father, now in this message, we pray that the work of your spirit would enlighten us, show us the truth, compel us to apply it to our lives, that we might bring glory to your name through our obedience and demonstration of our love to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is titled, Learning to Endure Through Temptation. It's a very practical title. There will be much practical application in the end. We need to get our arms around some of this at, at the beginning to try and understand. Otherwise, we will be off the mark when it comes for time for application. But trying to get us thinking about enduring, get us thinking about temptation, learning itself, let me pose a question to you, and particularly some of you fathers might know this. On days when there are significant events, you might know the frustration of this. Have you ever purchased something that needed assembly and the directions were just terrible? I mean, they were either pictures that were off, they were written by somebody whose first language was not English, and you're trying to make sense of the words that, that are supposed to align with the pictures, and you're just frustrated over it. Put in the, uh, the, the time component. It's before a child's birthday or a holiday. It's late in the evening, and you've got to get this thing built. And all of a sudden, you're dealing with frustration if you don't know the directions, if you can't comprehend them, or if you have no directions. I've had that as well. You open it up, and you're like, ah! I'm winging this one. Well, students, let me ask you this. Anne, Claire, others in the church, 
Have you ever had a homework assignment that the teacher's directions or the book's directions really didn't seem to make sense? Yeah. And you get frustrated. You're like, how do I do this? How am I going to turn this in tomorrow? I don't even know what it's asking of me. We get those situations sometimes. Well, today we are going to see that God knows we are going to face temptations. And God doesn't give us a set of directions that we can't understand, or he doesn't leave us without directions, or he doesn't leave us without clear directions. But God has graciously given us clear directions, and he gives us 24-7 real service, real access to him in our time of difficulty, when we not got, have to call the call center and say, all right, I, I don't know. I hear the directions, but I'm not sure of the application in this situation. This is what our God graciously does for us. If you'll do me a favor and take your bulletin and go to the, the back page where the outline is, I want to take a little more time with the outline because there's, some, there's something different that I'm doing today that I don't normally do. First off, the takeaway is there is a way to stand and endure in the face of temptation. We need to learn it, apply it, and experience the enduring grace of God. We cheat ourselves when we fail to learn it and apply it. We don't understand our God and his enduring grace. And you'll see in bullet point one that the Israelites failed to stand and endure, and we'll bear that out today. And I'm excited to show you because some of the language in the Hebrew does not get brought forward when we see it in the English. The English lacks some of the descriptors. But secondly, the application part is you know, deals with point number two. New Testament saints have been taught how to stand and endure. And if you'll notice, laid out there is all of chapter 12 of Hebrews. We don't have time to go through all of chapter 12. So thus, you will see that there are only, the only points that are bolded underneath the five points are uh, A, resist through prayer. We will not take on B, endure hardship as discipline. Or C, make straight paths. But we will take on D, realize you have come to Mount Zion. And I could have put in there, not Mount Sinai. And then E, we won't take on, offer your life to God as acceptable worship. But for those of you who are, who are, who say, you know what, I'd really like to know for myself what this is. What are the, the things I can do that God has given me? What's the instructions on how to fight this temptation? I've laid out or outlined every category, and you can read through that which we aren't going to discuss today. I am a biblical counselor. I am a shepherd. I am one who loves to come alongside people. So this is very important for me. But I learned long ago in my biblical counseling degree that self-counsel is always primary before I counsel someone else. And so I look at this and I say, thank you. This is a quick reminder. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, slow down, Nick. Don't get anxious. Here are some things you need to work through so that you don't fall to sin. You've heard me say before, for myself personally, anxiousness is the gateway to sin in my life. So let's take a look at 
Point number one here, the Israelites failed to stand and endure. And what's kind of neat here, we're actually going to see that the writer of Hebrews had this passage that we are reading through today in mind. You're going to see all the imagery he's going to pull from our passage in talking about temptation. That means that a New Testament saint looked at the Old Testament saints what he has written, and the New Testament explains the Old Testament. So we say, thank you, Jesus. I like when the New Testament saints do that because it helps me with my application. So we've got to understand the Old Testament, and then we'll look towards how the New Testament saint is, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to interpret it. So let's look at point number one. The Israelites failed to stand and endure. And we're going to go line by line so we can't Give this color so we understand what's going on. It says, on the morning of the third day, we, we saw last week that threes, as a general understanding in he, Hebrew num, numerology, it identifies significance. When you see the word three, that means something that is coming up or something applied to this event or this word or this attribute that it is describing is important. So on, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders. The word there in, in the uh, Hebrew is kol. It's going to play significance later on. Just bear with me. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders. There was coal and lightnings and a thick cloud. We looked last week at that descriptor in front of the word cloud, that thick or dense cloud, your, your Bible may say, gave the symbolism of this is something to do with judgment. This is typically how the, the two words work together in our Old Testament. So we have this atmosphere of we're heading towards judgment here. And it continues on. And lightning and, and a thick cloud on the mountain. We're talking about Mount Sinai. And a very loud trumpet. That trumpet is called the shofar. The shofar was an animal horn. And it would be blown aggressively, loudly, to either acknowledge Yahweh and the worship of him, if it was religious in nature. It could be done so as far as in the military to, advance, to signal advance, Yahweh is with us, advance on the enemy. It was a call to move forward. Or in this case, today, you'll see, we'll see it borne out that many times the prophets, in fact, the prophets, and, 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 uh, PJ was uh, taking us through the 12 prophets, uh, today, the, the writing prophets. And we saw that um, th there was judgment upon Israel, uh, judgment upon Judah. Oftentimes, these prophets are prophesying that the shofar is blown, the trumpet is blown, and it indicates the coming day of Yahweh. And if you heard some of the people up here use the word Yahweh, all that simply means is that that is the Hebrew name for God. When your Bible, it'll say L-O-R-D, all caps. It is the name that God said when Moses asked, what name shall I tell them you go by, basically, when they ask for your name? And he says, you shall, uh, uh, he says, I am who am. That is Yahweh. In other words, I am the self-existent one. I am the one that created all that is created. Therefore, I am the all-powerful creator over all. And then when it comes time for the covenant that we're engaging in here, he constantly uses the name Yahweh because it's also a covenant name. It's a personal name. I am the one that covenants with you. 
It, differ, it is a different name than Elohim, which means mighty arm. And we'll see there's significance. When he uses Lord, we should be going, what is he communicating? There's context here. And when he uses uh, the word God, it's a different name. And so we want to know what's going on. Here he says, so we see the shofar is often used on identifying the day of, the, of Yahweh, which is the coming day of judgment. Right in track, right in step with where we're heading now. These people are going to see their God for the first time, but he's coming as a God who is their judge as well. This is who they are coming in the presence of. And it continues on in verse 16. So the, uh, let me back up a little bit. A, a very loud trumpet, so not only thunders, not only lightnings, not only a thick cloud, but they hear a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp tremble. That's a right thing to be doing. You would do that naturally. No one would have to give you the elbow and say, hey, time to tremble. You would be overwhelmed. You would know if you were an ancient Near Eastern uh, inhabitant that this is a fearful event. In verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet. Does, do they, are they coming to meet Yahweh, the one who's covenanting with him? No. Well, yes, I'll say yes, but that's not the name he uses. He uses the name Elohim, mighty one. Oh, and they know it. They're trembling because they're coming in, in the presence of this mighty one. Then, the, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand. Now, something that is, is helpful here is this is the word yatsav. And we saw this with Jethro just a few chapters ago when Jethro was watching Moses uh, um, judge the people. The people would come before him, and Moses used two words. At one point, he says, hey, they're just standing around him. And that's the word amad, and it, means just, it just means position. Right now, I'm standing in front of you. I am amadding in front of you. But he also used the word yatsav, which meant to take a stand. The people were, that were coming before Moses were taking a stand. Moses was determining their disputes, what was right or wrong. He was judging. So when they were coming, they were coming to take a stand to say, well, this is my position. And the other person will say, well, this is my position. And Moses would hear it and make a judgment. So this word yatsav has an idea more than just physical uprightness. It has the understanding of coming with, with something more in mind. It means to take a stand. In this case, it's in, I need to get a little geeky with you, it's in a verb conjugation that typically means it's reflexive. For, the, for you uh, English teachers out there, you're probably going, Ooh, teach me more English, teach them, let them have it. For those of you who never did well in English, all that means is that the verb itself, this action, is being used upon itself. It means you add the word that is in context. Either myself, yourself, themselves would be added. So listen to this again then. The Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God the mighty one, and they took their stand themselves. So they're bracing. He's brought them out. They're at the base of the camp. In front of them is the border that he put and said, do not let uh, the people 
or the animals, their beasts, go beyond this border. So they're taking their stand in front of this God who is coming in this overwhelming sense of judgment upon them. Now, they have been ceremonially cleaned. Remember, Moses was told to consecrate them. So we had them wash their garments. That represented the cleanness of the outside of them. But put yourself in their place. They know the truth of their hearts. They have twice now rebelled against their God by grumbling and saying, we don't have the water you gave us. We don't have the food you gave us. Are you with us or not? And when they say that, God says, do not test me. Do not test me. I have passed, I have fulfilled that which I have demonstrated to you and said I would be faithful of. You have no right to stand and test me. And so he was angry. Now these people are coming into the presence of the God that they tested. When you think of the Israelites, you and I should be thinking of ourselves, not those evil Israelites. No, I don't mean that we stand in the same place as them, but we need to be humble and realize that we too, like Israelites, sometimes test our God in our grumbling and not being satisfied and saying, are you going to get me out of this or not? How long do I have to go through this? Are you a good God? Or are you something else like the other nations have? We don't want to be in that place. So when it says they took their stand, it means that they came with the understanding. He said, don't cross this barrier or this border. Do not come into up the mountain. You are not holy enough to be in my presence. The only ones holy enough to be in my presence are Moses, who I have assigned as the one as my mediator of the covenant. And we'll see in a little bit Aaron, who will be the father of the Aaronic or Aaron-descended priesthood. Those are the only two, and the priesthood is going to minister to, to the Lord in the presence of his tabernacle or later in his temple. Everyone else, the commoners, you can't come any closer. You would, to come into my presence would mean that you would be consumed, for I am a God who is a consuming fire. It's interesting. Holiness consumes evil. We don't always see that. Do you remember when Jesus touched those that were, that were filled with a disease? People would go, oh my gosh, you're going to have the disease. And what happened? Holiness left that otherness of God, left Jesus and went in contact with that which was sinful that which was caused by, I, when I say sinful, I'm not suggesting that they were sinful, but because of the results of a fallen mankind, we have these diseases that are destructed upon us. So in that sense, that disease is from the fall, and therefore it is sinful. That holiness leaves Christ, and we see that person being healed. To be in the presence of the holiness of God is to take on and absorb some of that. God is coming with some sense of the, the beginnings of the fullness of who he is. He's being, that fullness of his glory is manifested in the natural uh, things of this nature. Thunder, lightning. Ever been hiking up in the higher mountains and you feel that your body reverberate? When that thunder goes off, that lightning seems like it's five times closer, because it is, because we're always on sea level down here. 
That's what they are experiencing, and they realize their sinfulness. It is both a physicalness and a reality of the spiritual state that they are in. They were called to stand, take their stand, and resist going over or trespassing the border. Don't go over this law, this barrier that I have given you. It continues on, then verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot or the base of the mountain. There is a problem. If they took their stand themselves, do you realize the problem? They are relying on their own righteousness to stand before God. And you say, well, they've been ceremonial cleaned. They had their clothes washed. Well, remember, we just talked about, but they know the reality. The ceremonial only, only is, some, is that which points to the actual reality which will take place in Christ. They would know that they're hypocrites standing in his presence. What would you do if you knew God was coming today into this congregation in the way that he is the judge himself? Not as your your redeemer or your savior, but as your judge, and you have stood on your own righteousness. Would you not find yourself falling on your face and say, please have mercy on me. I know who I am, and I know I can't fake it to you. That's what all of us have done by way of repenting of our sinfulness. We have said, I'm a hypocrite. I'm tired of faking it and saying I'm king of my life. I'm Lord. I only come into your presence because of the righteousness outside of me, the righteousness of someone other than me, the righteousness of a mediator, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason I can come into your presence and not be consumed by fire. They know it, and they don't do anything. When they were being oppressed way back at the beginning of Exodus, and they could not bear the oppression any longer, they cried out to God and said, save us. They knew what to do in oppression, and they're failing to do it now. And that's a problem. We cannot stand in and of ourselves, our own righteousness. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. We've got a new thing going on. We're not only thunders, lightning, thick, thick cloud, we now have the smoke. The smoke of it went up like the smoke. And uh, you, if you heard today, it was red. If you have a, an ESV, you heard smoke of a kiln, K-I-L-N. I want to suggest to you that I disagree with the ESV, and I'm in good company because the King James Version, the New International, excuse me, the New English Translation, the New International Version, and the New American Standard Bible all put furnace, and I believe they got it theologically correct. Not only that, but there's other implications here. Why it's furnace? Remember, judgment is going on here. Let me. Let me give you an idea of where this verse, the only other time in Hebrew, remember, Hebrew works cyclical. When you hear words or something that sounds familiar from the past, God is using that old wording to get that image in your mind so you move forward. And he keeps adding to the story in cycles. It's a progressive relation of this massive book 
but we can't read this as separate books that are not interactive. So in this, we look back and say, okay, where was this word furnace, this word used in the past? Here's the verse. Tell me this isn't going to be sobering. This is Genesis 19, 27 to 28. I'm just going to read it so you guys can, can do what I went through when I did this little thing. We're going to say, when was the last time it was used? Let's see what, you, what expression you feel on your face. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. And he looked downward toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You see, the word should be furnace and not kiln because a kiln is a, a type of, of, uh, of furnace, if you will. It's a type, it's, it's where grain and pottery was put into this so that it would be dried. The pottery needed to be hardened so it could be used. The grain needed to be dried so that it could be baked properly. But the temperatures are much lower. Now, the furnace is heated several times over hotter. The furnace is a smelting furnace. It's the furnace where when you want to separate out, remember this whole chapter we're dealing with, we need to be holy, which means set apart. The furnace was used to separate out the impurities from the pure. You would put gold in there. You would fire it up, and you would fire it up, and you would fire it up, and up would come the impurities, the dross. You know what the technical term of the dross is? I had to look this up so I wouldn't offend you guys. Worthless scum. Wow. Let's not hold back there. The dross, the worthless scum, would rise to the top, and then the one who was working the smelting furnace would strike it off and do this process again until finally they could have it to where there were no impurities that had risen to the top. This smelting furnace was a furnace of judgment separating out the pure from the impure. So when it says here, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a, of a furnace. Now picture yourself as the Israelites. If you were trying to be a poser at this point, you'd be scared to death. You recognize that smoke that incredibly dark smoke that is produced by the furnace, not by the kiln. That which judges out the impurity. This is a scene of testing and judgment. Now, I want you to hear this clearly, because you may not have heard this before unless you were in this little church. I don't know what you've, you've heard before. We went through Genesis. What happened at Sodom and Gomorrah is that you had the people of Sodom and Gomorrah trespassing, overstepping the border, the boundary that God had given as a creation boundary. God had said in Genesis, you shall only have sexual relationships within a marriage, and it will only be from a, between a man and a woman. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, they want the, the men of that city want the angels. They don't know they're angels, but we have another layer of going beyond the border. They want to engage in that activity, that activity with the male angels. They went so far over the border, 
so far trespassed over what God's creation declaration was that God says, I will wipe them out. So we have that picture in our background. When, when you heard, or excuse me, when you heard furnace, if you were Hebrew, you would go back to that, that picture. And then you'd have that, and, and, and you would know this as, as you were listening to this, as you were being read this, and oh, this is not good. If you weren't the one there, and you were a later Hebrew in, the line, in their line, you would be knowing this is not good at all. In today's passage, the Israelites stand pure, richly, ritually set apart by the washing of their clothes. Yahweh's presence and the fact that Yahweh is going to give them the law. We read the law today. PJ read it. Why? Because the law is that which judges our hearts. When we put our hearts up against the law, we know, I have transgressed against my Lord and my Savior because this is what the law has said, and I've either come short of doing it, or I've gone beyond it. I've trespassed it. That's what the role of the law does. And they know that they're going to get the stipulations of the covenant. This Sinai or Mosaic covenant is coming. That's the, they would know that because of their culture. They understand he's coming now to give us that which is required of us. And they know the reality that they cannot be faced with this law and perform, and perform well. You see, they know they're going to break through the boundaries. You and I know, even as Jesus Christ has redeemed us, that tomorrow, unfortunately, we're going to sin against our Lord and Savior. May we understand what this message is today, that maybe we sin less tomorrow because of the holiness of our God. Because of, not because he's coming in judgment against us, but because of who he is and has made possible by his son's death for us to stand in his presence. You see, Yahweh is coming this day in this passage to show them their weaknesses, to remind them of their sinful past just in dealing with him as far as their grumbling. He's coming to convict them of their need for some type of righteousness, somebody to make them clean like Moses did outside of themselves. This is God, the God who has already said, Let's, I'm going to allow you to experience the Passover. I'm going to allow you, my people, the Israelites, to have a, the blood of a lamb placed over your doors so that you are not you don't experience the death of the firstborn. We, under, we said that when he talks about the death of the firstborn, the firstborn always represents the rest of the family. So when, he's, when he is doing this in real life and only saying this is for the firstborn, we with ears of the ancient Near East culture would know, oh, he means everybody. Yeah, he does. In fact, we're going to see that passage today. He came and he showed them by way of the blood of the lamb that there is one, there is a lamb of God that would one day atone for their sin. Now he is giving them the understanding of the mediator. This same, they don't know it, this same lamb of God, they think at this point that it's just a lamb. He needs to reveal more to show that it's going to be his son. They're not there yet. But now he's giving them the kernel, the seed of truth 
that there will be a mediator one day, somebody greater than Moses, somebody that gives them or makes them consecrated, makes them clean, but not just clean outside by washing of the clothes, clean inside. You see, the law says to us that are actually willing to see our sinfulness, I got nothing before you, God. I, just, I deserved absolute consummation in the fire. I deserve to be destroyed by your pure, consuming fire that, that, that is your glory. I can't stand in your presence. That's where we should all stand as we come before the Lord, realizing we're on this side of the new covenant, what he has done to make us be able to stand. But do we do not come presumptuously like these people, waltz into his presence and say, okay, I'm ready to take this on by myself. Give me your best shot. They're not saying that. I probably am a little over there. But they certainly are standing only on what they got. Certainly, we can say that we, we know better than that. We have the blood of Christ. Let's continue on in verse 19. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. You can almost hear their hearts beating louder and louder as it, this is starting to overwhelm them. Moses spoke, and God answered him in coal. Remember the Hebrew word for thunder? The Hebrew word for the blast of the trumpet was also coal. The word is used again here. So is God answering, as your ESV says, in a thunder? I don't speak thunder, other than I know how to be scared. I couldn't interpret God if he talked to me in thunder. Is that what he's getting at? I think our, uh, the ESV could have used a little explanation on this one. Because we know that it's not thunder, it's in a voice. And how, Nick, do we know that? Well, I'll give you the Old Testament, and then when you see if you can find it, if you hear it when we go through Hebrew. In the Old Testament, this is Deuteronomy. This is the, this rebellious generation, those who were 20 years and older, were, were killed off. When Deuteronomy starts, we've got the new generation occurring, and he's telling the new generation your, your parents that were all rebellious, all your uncles and everybody that was older than, than tw- 20 years and older, they died off. They, paid their, they have been punished for their rebellion against me. Now you listen to the second giving of the law. I am going to give you the law again. That's what deutero means. Two, dudu, deutero. And then the nami is law, second law or second giving of the law. And, and so with that, listen to Deuteronomy 4.11. He says this. This is Moses talking to the second generation. And you came near. Now, some of these were actually there on the mountain. If they were 19 to, let's say, 3, they would get what was going on. One and two probably didn't figure it out. They just were terrified and crying to their moms. Three above would probably have figured it out. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in. Now listen to how Moses describes this. If you were kind of on the fence with me as far as this being judgment, Listen to how Moses adds descriptors. Wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Gloom because the judge is present and we have not the righteousness to stand in his place. Verse 12, then Yahweh spoke out in the midst of the fire, excuse me, out, excuse me, spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard, listen carefully, the sound of words, not thunder, yeah, thunder was going on. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. They could only experience the glory of, of, of Yahweh, 
through the natural experience that God allowed them through, through those mighty acts of thunder and lightning, but saw no form, there was only a voice. They heard it. Let's continue on. Verse 20. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Verse 21, and and Yahweh said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through. I want you to hear the word trespass. Go beyond that which they were told to do or not do. Lest they break through to Yahweh to look. Interesting, we're hearing a little bit of the motive. They they, They possibly would be overwhelmed with the desire to see this God. And they're not given that privilege because this God is too holy to be seen. And many of them perish. Interesting enough, we have the understanding there that they would perish because of their presumptiveness. The perishing. Remember earlier, the Israelites were told that if anyone breaks the border, you are to shoot them. And we talked about that could be with a sling and a rock. It could be with a bow and an arrow. This parish gives the idea that God is bringing upon them violent judgment. He will take their lives immediately. The the idea is, in my mind, in thinking through this, I don't know if this is exactly right. I'm very, very visual. I think of, they get beyond, they just take off the mountain, they get beyond the rock doors or the, the arrow, and God says, as you come near my presence, boom, Tesla coil, you're done. You've been consumed by the purity of my glory. You have understood that I am a consuming fire. That, I believe, is the, is the picture. It continues on. And then in the ESV, in verse 22, look down at your, your uh, uh, scripture there. Yours says, if you've got the ESV, it says, also let. Well, that word there can also be translated even. It's only one of the five Bibles that I like to compare it against that use the word even. I think they're right. Listen to how I'm going to explain that. He says this, even the priests. Now, these are pre-Aaronic priests, priests prior to Aaron. We don't know anything about these priests. The ancient Near East, every culture had priests. Every culture needed, they needed somebody that would help them interface with God. Every culture had one. They all understood their gods. They were, their gods were all false gods, but they understand the need. We don't know anything about these priests other than they're prior to Aaron, God establishing through Aaron the priesthood. So they are certainly lesser priests, if you will. And it says this, Even the priests who come near to Yahweh, and the word should be in there, must concentrate, excuse me, concentrate, consecrate. And notice the word themselves. It's that same word or that same verb type that causes the word themselves to be added. It's reflexive is the English terminology. Remember we said that they took their stand themselves? Well, here that same verb is there and the ESV said, oh yeah, we're going to put that word themselves in there. Good. I wish you would have put it in both times. So here we have them less the, let me read back. Even the priests who come near to Yahweh must consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out in sudden violent judgment. In other words, that is what it's talking about as well. They don't get a pass. 
because they get the title priests. They're not priests set up by God, by Yahweh himself. These are priests that came into the culture by way of the ancient Near East customs. Verse 23, and Moses said to Yahweh, the people, speaking of the ordinary people and the priests combined. When he says people, that's what you're dealing with. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to the mountain, for you yourselves warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. What he's saying is, look, we set up the limits. They're not going to come past the limits. We've set up these limits. They're not going to go beyond them. Oh, Moses. God bless you, Moses. You know, his, his bigness of understanding God. But he still is an He still has that mindset, no matter what the people do. I love the people. They're good people. And we'll see how good they are left unto themselves. And verse 24, And Yahweh said to him, Go down. And there's something that happens in the Hebrew. You could add the word, And you come up. God is saying it's important that you come up. You have, because of your role as, as the mediator, you have the ability to come up to me. I want you to come up. And bringing, come up, bringing Aaron with you. I will tell you, this is not going to happen for three chapters where Aaron's coming up. Moses is going to be down with the people, and so is Aaron. And we're going to see, I will show you after the giving of the law, how the people performed and what Moses did in their lack of performance and their not-so-good performance when God gave the law. It continues on. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out, lest God break out, Yahweh break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Three times, two in today's and one before, last week's sermon, God has said, don't let the people break out. What a merciful, gracious God. How many parents give their kids three times? I tell you, I learned as a parent, if you give three times, they're going to always go to a fourth. That's just the way it is in parenting. And yet God is showing such great mercy, such great patience that he gives it three times. you think they would get it. And yet, that's us. Please don't think of them as the bad guys. We don't get it as well. We continue on now. Let's transition to New Testament saints that have been taught how to stand. Let's look at this. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a background. I need to, to read. We're going to, we've got about 10 minutes left in the sermon, so just bear with me. We're going to read a little bit of chapter tw- uh, 10. I'm going to explain just shortly what's in chapter tw- uh, 11, and so that when we get to 12, you understand what's going on. Listen to this. This is chapter 10, for those of you who want to follow along. This is verses 26 through 31, 26 to 31, and then we're going to jump to 39. This is what... This is the context for understanding chapter 12 by the writer of Hebrews. He says this, For if we go go on sinning deliberately, hmm, sounds like our Israelite friends, and yet he's talking to Christians, Jewish Christians, but Christians. For if we go on sinning deliberately, that's what they were doing, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you think, if I think, you can live like hell, you can sin like hell, 
you can keep on going because you got your Disneyland ticket to heaven, you got a problem because you are actually adversaries of God. If you're not trying to sin less by the grace and power of Jesus Christ because of the conviction of your heart, whether it's conviction by the way of the law or it's conviction by way of gratitude of what Christ did, there's a problem. And that's what he's dealing with here in Hebrews. He continues on. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a legal standing. In, in that society, two or three witnesses were, were needed to say, this one needs to put, be put out of the camp. They're not one of us. They do not abide by the law of Moses. Let's continue on. 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Eww. Those who are Christians and presumptively sin without thinking twice, not being convicted that it's wrong, not being broken over it, and has profaned the blood of the covenant, that's the covenant of grace, the New Testament covenant, by which he, Jesus, was sacrificed, was, excuse me, by which I said that wrong, by which he, the, the individual, was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace, that's the Holy Spirit, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He judges those who profess Christianity and are not part of his people. And he judges them harshly because they were posers. They were fakers. They enjoyed the grace of God under the umbrella of his grace of the church. And yet they were not real Christians. They were not broken over their sin. It doesn't mean sinless. On this side of attorney, we will not know sinlessness. God knows that. doesn't mean we don't fall to temptation, but it does mean we are convicted that when a brother or sister in Christ tells us, brother, do you understand that? I come to you out of love, and then we go, oh, what an idiot I am. What a knucklehead. What a, a, a breaker of the wonderful covenant of grace. Whatever wording it is that, that convicts your heart, that's where we stand. We are people of God when we have that. And verse 31, this is that famous sermon from this text. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It is fearful to all those that are not Christians or profess to be Christians and live like hell. They are not changed. They are not repentant. And then verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back. That's what shrinking back, the picture is, I once knew and now I no longer am convicted by this sin. I shrink back from it and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls, then we get to chapter 11. That's the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11. Hebrews, the writer says, let me give you an idea of encouragement. And he gives a, what we call the hall of faith. All of chapter 11 is all about the faithful in God. And some of those are, are people you go, huh? How'd Samson get in there? And then you're supposed to go because faith is given by God and God sustains faith. We need to realize that and beg God to sustain our faith, not as if we could lose it, but because we're, we are bringing injury upon his name when we sin. And then we get to chapter, our chapter 12. Verses 1 through 4. And this is, again, we're only going to read this, this particular section in A, and then I'm going to jump down to bullet point D in your bulletin. 
Hebrews, or the writer of Hebrews, calls us to take on an attitude of intense resistance through prayer. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 11, the whole of faith, that's who are the great cloud of witnesses he's talking about, let us also lay aside every weight, what are you talking about, and sin which clings so closely. He's dealing with us, our falling to sin, our temptation that we fall into and actually partake in the sin. And let us run with endurance. The Israelites did not endure. We're going to see that in a minute. They failed when they took their stand by themselves. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Those of you who have ever had shame forced on you by someone else, not the shame of your own sinfulness. You've had the shame of someone else. They did something despicable to you. They, they made you out to be something that you were not. They tried to identify you as shameful because you participated or they've made you feel as though you participated in something evil. That's the shame that Christ knew. He took on but despised the shame of the world that was placed on him willingly. I should say when I say that he took on, both the father placed on and he willingly, according to the word, took on. That shame he despised. I want to get this out. If you've ever had that kind of shame placed on you, forced on you, you need not any longer take on that identity with that shame that was forced upon you because Christ took it all at the cross so that you might be cleansed and made pure. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You stand righteous legally righteous in the presence of Christ, even though daily you break in fellowship. That does not change your identity. That just means you need to reestablish that fellowship by asking for God's forgiveness. You are cleansed in the Father's eyes. You will never stand before God as a judge that will condemn that shame that was forced on you. You will not stand even for the shame that you produced by sinning. What a gracious gracious God. He continues on. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Some say that he's speaking of martyrs that have gone before. I believe he's speaking of Christ himself. Still, the context is still in Christ. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Again, there are some that says, oh, I was talking about the martyrs. I do not hold to that. I think that you can, but that is a second, maybe a secondary, down-the-line kind of a picture. What's going on is the picture of Christ. And so the question is, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I'm just going to say this because I need to wrap this up now. I'm going to read to you Luke. If you want to write down where it is, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses. Luke 22, 39 to 42 and 44. It says this, Luke 29, 39 to 42 and 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, this is Jesus, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation is what he's dealing with here. Got the context? He's trying to keep the, his disciples out of temptation. 
to, to fail to meet the standard. They're not going to go beyond the standard. They don't even make the standard. He's trying to keep them out of the temptation to fall asleep, but rather to, to pray as he is praying, to pray this intercessory prayer. And he continues on. Verse 41, and he withdrew, talking about Jesus, from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, listen to this, this is the great temptation that Christ felt, your Lord and Savior felt. Father, if you are, are willing, remove this cup, this cup of wrath, the fullness of the wrath of all who would repent and trust in Jesus Christ. The weight of that on his shoulders, he knows it. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of wrath from me. But he endures. Listen to what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 44. And being in agony, agony over what he is, is being expected of him, what he knows he must do, the pain and suffering he shall feel that goes beyond the bounds of us comprehended because we've only taken on ever the, the suffering of maybe relational suffering that we're in a relationship with someone else or our own suffering. He's taking on the suffering of all that would one day repent of their sin and profess him as Lord and Savior. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That is, he prayed with a seriousness and a genuineness. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. This challenged me this week. Every time I was tempted to sin, where I started was, I asked myself, Nick, have you resisted to the point of, of blood? In other words, Nick, have you resisted to the point that your Savior resisted? Yes, I know he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we must deal with his, his humanity as well. Nick, are you flippantly thinking this is just better off for me? Or have you stood resisting with that image in your mind? And I have to tell you, this week it helped me defeat the sin. I kept saying over and over again, have you resisted to the, to the point where you've, you've shed blood? And the answer every time is no. It doesn't mean bootstrap theology. I'll tell you what it does mean. It means that what Jesus was doing, he was talking to the Father. He was praying. He was praying more earnestly. That means in the, in the midst of my being tempted to sin, stop, Nick, stop. Stop thinking, you're, you're, you know, this is so terrible, or gosh, this would just be better if. No. Pray to the Lord for enduring grace in the midst of that. Know what he has done in his suffering and his agony for you. Be reminded of that. Stand firm, not by thyself, but by the, the grace of God. Stand firm and endure. And the last point we see here. You know what? I will say this. I ask myself in those moments. What, I, what am I being tempted to rely on if it wasn't prayer unto my Father? Because whatever it was, was an idol in my heart, a false god. And I saw some false gods this week that disgust me, and I don't want any part of it. Finally, point number D here. Realize you have come to Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. If you'll jump over there, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, it says this. 
For you have not come, he's talking, this is the, the writer of Hebrews talking to the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians, letting them understand they would know, they would think the mountain that they would have in their mind is Mount Zion, the holy mountain. That's where the law happened. That's the biggie in their lives. And he's saying to them, you got the wrong mountain. For you have not come to what, we, what may be touched. Think about our border, like Jesus, that was set up by Moses. What can be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest. Listen to all those words of judgment. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose, word was, whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Oh, they knew the words that God was giving to them, the ten words of the law, the moral law that was spoken to them. And we'll see starting in chapter 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. And then listen to this. Remember the order was no human being or beast can go by this because they are to be killed by you. And if you can't get them and they approach my holiness, I will kill them. That's the order. Why does he use this? Listen to the words here. He says this. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Huh? Why are you referencing the lesser of the two? The more important would be the human being that would transgress. What are you talking about, writer of Hebrews? Let's continue on. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses didn't say, I tremble with fear right there when they were at the base of the mountain. Moses said that when he came down from the mountain and they had done something. Let's take a look at what he says. Deuteronomy 9.19 says this. This is Moses. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that Yahweh bore against you. This, this one who made covenant with you bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. Verse 32 to 34 is Moses begging God. Hold to your promises. Don't kill them. They're, basically, they are stupid, but kill me instead. He was demonstrating the heart of a mediator. Doesn't that sound like our Lord Jesus Christ's heart? Kill me instead. Let me be the sacrifice. But Yahweh listened to me that, th that time also. They forced, the Israelites forced a beast onto that sacred ground. And that beast was the golden calf. They broke the first two covenants. Thou shall not have any false god before me. Thou shalt make no graven image. That's what they did. That's what the writer of Hebrews is putting together. This is not the mountain that we come to. This is not the mount of judgment that this whole generation will eventually be judged against when they fail to go into the promised land. God still in his graciousness holds off destroying them. We don't face that judgment. That's the wrong mountain, is what the Hebrews are, or the writer of Hebrews say, is saying. They could not endure the temptation to trespass God's very first and second laws. But listen to this, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, where Christ himself was given over for us as atonement, his death for ours. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering that is singing joyful praise. This is the picture of the mountain saint when you lack the, the, the reality that, of that temptation you are about to partake in. This is what you should be thinking of. This is what I should be thinking of. This is the better mountain made possible by Jesus Christ. And to the assembly, the word there is ecclesia. It means church. Church, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by God, is talking to us. And, and to the church of the firstborn. Who was the firstborn? The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many men and women. We follow in what he has done. He has made us righteous by his perfect act for us. And it continues on. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits, in other words, the souls of the righteous made perfect. That's you and me. And dwell on this. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood. In the Old Testament, you're going to see it. We're going to see it in a little bit. You were made perfect by the end. The beast that was sacrificed, that would one day picture Jesus' sacrifice. He will sprinkle the blood as a Catholic young man growing up. He would sprinkle the holy water on you, and I didn't understand what was going on. Now I understand. They were imitating and falsely imitating that which they believe can, be, can occur by way of works. It doesn't occur. We are not made clean by the sprinkling of the blood of bulls. We are made clean when we are sprinkled metaphorically by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let that grasp you in the, mo- in the minute and the moment of your temptation. And it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel said, I deserve justice. I deserve retribution for my death from my brother. And the blood of Jesus says, You deserve death. I give you redemption. And we say, Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. So finally, we end with this. You as a child of God, me as a child of God, those of us who have repented of our sins, who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and live in the place of humility where we are taking that which he has given us to fight against the temptation to sin and trying to apply it, realizing we are not perfect, But he is good and gracious, and he causes us to stand once again when we ask for forgiveness, and we stand in the righteousness of his path. Those people, you and me, live out of a heart of gratitude. I end with the takeaway we started with. There is a way to stand and endure in the face of temptation. Learn it, apply it, and experience experience, taste, and see that God is good. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a gracious God. We recognize, we stand as those who recognize Mount Zion as our mount because it is the mount that the Savior, our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did what we could not do gave us a righteousness outside of ourselves, paid the price for our sinfulness, paid the price for our trespasses against you, 
Sounds like the Lord's Prayer itself all over again. You did that through the work of your Son, and you are making that possible in our life through the person of the Holy Spirit, convicting, guiding, giving us your enduring grace in our time of need. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that we are called the church, the people of God, by your incredible grace and mercy. In Christ's name we pray.